Welcome to An Abundant Future with Matt Powers. I'm your host, Matt Powers. This is a podcast where we talk about what's possible, how to regenerate our world, how to make it beyond the garden, make it our lifestyle, make it our livelihood. We're talking today with Bruce Landfair of Non-Toxic Irvine about how this all began. How do we start tracking toxins? What do we need to do to start cleansing ourselves of toxins and protect ourselves and our family from toxins? Let's get our communities cleaned up and let's take care of this problem. So let's dive in right now and listen to what Bruce has to tell us because it's amazing. Well, when I, when I was 15, I spent a year in Kenya, in a, a, a urban village in Kenya. And I remember walking through the village with my mom, and there was a kid with measles and another kid taking a dump right outside their front doorstep. And, and I asked why the kid had measles. I mean, it was a vaccine-preventable disease, right? And my mother said, well, not everybody's able to get the vaccine. So at that point, I decided I was going to go back and vaccinate kids in Africa. All right, so that was my 15-year uh, dream. I went through med school and, um, I was in training to do tropical medicine and public health down at, uh, Tulane. And my fiance had followed me, but after several months at working at charity, which was really, a, it was being run like a third world hospital. She says, I, I'm not learning anything. I'm doing the orderly work. I'm doing the nursing work. And she was going to shift to uh, the program up in Cincinnati. And so she said to me, are you gonna come with me or what? So of course I went, and there's not a lot of tropical medicine in Cincinnati. So um, I did occupational health, took care of the employees at the university hospital and the children's hospital. I did that for several years, but for a variety of reasons, it wasn't, it wasn't suitable. Uh, and so I began to look for other alternatives and what I really want to do, and I think what most people in public health would do if we could, is we'd eliminate poverty. And if you could eliminate poverty, you'd eliminate half of the problems we have in the world, diseases, disorders, and so forth, because they're so inter intertwined. But that was a little daunting. And so there was an opportunity to try to find ways to prevent childhood lead poisoning, which acts as an obstacle for children to thrive. And so I, I grabbed onto that, and that was sort of how I got in, uh, not very directly, but into studying the impact of toxic chemicals on, on children's brains. Wow. So were you part of that study that they did where they proved that violence was linked to lead poisoning and in the, in the, when they removed lead from gasoline, there was a drop in violence? We did the studies um, where we had children that we followed from birth and we had a series of uh, measures of lead in their blood. And then we looked at their brains when they were about 23 years of age using brain scans. And we looked at whether having higher blood lead levels during childhood, what we would have described as lead poisoning today, was associated or led to children having higher rates of uh, crime being arrested more often. And we found that they were tied in. So there's been about a couple dozen studies, all of which support this this linkage, including studies that you describe where um, it's very likely that lead was the major reason for the epidemic of violent crimes in the United States, particularly during the 50s, 60s, 70s. And 
as blood lead levels came down, so then did violent crimes. All of this maps out beautifully. Uh, it hasn't been picked up by a lot of criminologists, uh, but the evidence is pretty is pretty clear. Wow. And so that started your passion to start exploring these smaller. I mean, these these they, they cause huge things, <laughs> but they're the little things that may make this huge difference. Well, when I started, my first study was to try to identify what levels of lead in house dust led to children being poisoned, because if we could identify the levels that were dangerous, then we could go into the homes before a child was born, before they moved into a, an, a, an apartment or a home, we could test the dust using what looks basically like a baby wipe. And if it came back high, then we'd say, don't live there. We need to clean it up, fix it up before a child lives there. We did that and we found it was a useful tool, but still too often because we don't have regulations that require testing the home before a child moves in, we still continue to use children as biological indicators of substandard housing or lead contaminated housing. So we haven't really fixed that. Um, yeah, why, why are we seeing 100% of children having lead in their blood? Well, it's true. I mean, 100% of children do. Um, it's because it's because of the industrialization of, of our planet. Uh, if you go back to our single-cell ancestors that grew up in the pr primordial waters, the, the amounts of certain elements like lead and mercury were there an extraordinarily low concentrations. So as we evolved early on, we didn't develop ways to use lead or mercury, and we didn't develop ways to tolerate it because it was there in such small concentrations. In contrast, things like calcium and sodium that we rely on were there in extraordinarily high concentrations. So up until about 500 years ago, that was the way it was. Humans were exposed to extraordinarily low concentrations, and then during the Roman era, they began to refine metal, mostly for the silver, and lead was a byproduct. But you can go back and you can look in the glacial ice cores and show how, beginning with the Roman era, we've seen increases, but dramatically during the last couple centuries, these dramatic increases in the amount of lead that's been aerosolized, put into the atmosphere, and then settled down. And then because we painted our homes with it, and because we had leaded gasoline, we've surrounded ourselves with lead. So even though blooded levels have come down over 90% in the past four decades, each of us is still exposed to levels probably 10 to 100 times higher than our pre-industrial ancestors. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, you know, often I cannot help but feel that the complexity I mean, everyone seems to be like, oh, no, this is this, and this causes that. And I'm like, yeah, but what about all of them? <laughs> we yeah. have no idea. That's right. And we're still trying to figure out how do we study the chemical mixtures, the chemical soup that is found in each one of us. Uh, most of the research has evolved to try to look at one toxic chemical or one pollutant at a time. What's the impact of lead? What's the impact of of a particular pesticide on children's brains or on their their lung function or on whether they're fertile or not uh, and as they as they mature. So we've done it focused on one chemical at a time. 
There's a few studies, like one that we did um, in a national study, we found that children who were uh, in the top 33 percentile for blood lead levels were about two times more likely to meet criteria for ADHD, to have ADHD. And children who were prenatally exposed to tobacco, that is their mom smokes when they were, they were pregnant, were also about two times more likely to meet criteria for ADHD, to have ADHD. But if children had both higher lead levels and were exposed to smoke, tobacco smoke uh, prenatally, they were over eight times more likely, or one out of four kids with both exposures. So sometimes we've, we've seen how two different chemicals don't add up to two, they add up to eight. That is, they magnify the impact of each other, the damage that they can cause. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Knowing how you reacted to finding this information out probably is going to give a lot of people hope because there's a lot of people out there, you know, who feel paralyzed with stress when they hear that things aren't clean. <laughs> we come from a, a society that values the concept of, oh, it's sterile, it's clean, and nothing is in all reality. But how did you react when you first heard that, you know, our children are filled with, you know, well, not filled. <laughs> our children have these toxins in their blood. And right. we're continuously in situations where we're being inundated by these stressors. And it can feel like overwhelming. So how did you process that? Well, it, it came about slowly. Hmm. Uh, it's just been really in the past two decades where we've been able to measure most of these chemicals um, on a regular basis. Hmm. So when I first started about 25 years ago, we could measure lead and mercury, and we're just beginning to measure a metabolite of tobacco, nicotine, or cotinine in people's blood or urine, um, and PCB. So there was, there was a, a, a handful or two of things that we could measure. But in the past two decades, there's really been a revolution in the kinds of things we can measure uh, from a, a, you know, a couple tablespoons of blood or in urine. And now we're measuring regularly hundreds of chemicals in pregnant women and in children. So when the, we have a, a, a cohort study in Cincinnati and we have another one in Canada where we've, we've measured um, hundreds of these chemicals in, uh, in pregnant women and in their children in either the, the urine or in the blood or sometimes we'll measure hair um, or saliva. You can measure it in different material, but we're measuring these things in parts per billion. So extraordinarily low concentrations, but those concentrations that we're measuring, uh, things like lead or flame retardants, PBDEs or pesticides, we think of them as being low, but if you, if you look at the biologic activity of certain drugs, like methylphenidate, which is used to treat kids with ADHD, or Viagra, which is used for other purposes, the range at which they are biologically active, the range at which they work, is comparable with the range of exposures that we see these environmental contaminants. And so the idea that the environmental contaminants that we find in pregnant women and children are too low to cause any problems uh, doesn't hold water if you begin to recognize that there are comparable concentrations with chemicals that are used as drugs. So 
what would you what would your game plan be if you know and what is your game plan for dealing with these toxins and for as best we can cleansing ourselves i know that word cleanse has a you know such a loaded <laughs> you know history now but um what can we do to lower these concentrations in our body and what can we hope for what's the best we can hope for being as as we all are to a certain degree facing this toxic burden what sh could we be led free is that a goal we can set realistically and have it be attainable in our blood in our lifetime it's it's attainable uh over gener over a generation or two wow uh, and that's i mean actually this is it's good news i mean as much as it can be troubling to to find out that there's so many contaminants in our bodies um and to find out that many of those are causing death, increased death, disease, and disability. But it all also offers hope because if we understand what the causes of disease are and we know how to reduce exposures to those contaminants, and we do for most of them, then we actually know a lot about how to prevent disease. And in that sense, it's really quite hopeful. The part that's disappointing and the reason I started to make videos is because I realized that for many of these environmental contaminants, even once we began to recognize the kind of disease they cause, I realized that we weren't acting on it. We weren't trying to reduce them. So in the study I talked a minute ago about with ADHD, we found out we could estimate that we would prevent about one out of three cases of ADHD in children in the United States. That's about one million cases. If we reduced lead exposure, and pregnant women didn't smoke uh, um, um, cigarettes. One out of three cases. Now, if you think about it, if I had developed a drug or a vaccine that would prevent one out of three cases of ADHD, I'd be a multimillionaire. I'd be very famous. <laughs> but it doesn't work that way when you talk about environmental contaminants, because you come up against industry. You come up against these businesses that are making profit off, off of these products. And we haven't been willing to act on these types of, of, of hazards the same way uh, as if you could make a profit doing it. And so if we allow the, 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 the medical system, our health system, to be driven by the free market, we're going to have a hard time preventing disease because it's, it's hard to privatize the benefits of preventing disease. It's easy to privatize benefits of treating disease. But what I've found is that even though we don't have many surveys about this, parents would prefer to prevent disease. Pediatricians would prefer to prevent disease. And yet we spend about 4% of our health dollars on prevention, even though we know a lot about what is causing disease. Absolutely. And so much of this can be taken care of even at school. I mean, school children can be the ones doing a lot of the work that would provide the solutions to this. And I, I was I thought I watched your talk on these solutions and a lot of them were doing in my family. But a few of them, I was like, oh, right. That is right. Ah, And I had that, you know, that feeling that like oh, you, you should have known that one. <laughs> Uh, do you want to take us through that list of, 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 of do's, you know, and don'ts uh, for choosing the right food and, and making the right choices with your family? And then let's talk about how, how to take it to a community level from there. 
Okay. So let me first point out that I think one of the most challenging things is that while there are things that we can do in our own homes, ultimately the only way to uh, protect people from environmental contaminants is to do it at a regulatory basis. And I'll give you a quick anecdote about that, and then we'll talk about some of the specifics. So Joe Bakken, who wrote a book called Childhood Under Siege, was interviewing me about environmental chemicals, and I was going through this litany, uh, different chemicals and what they're associated with, what kind of problems. And after about five or 10 minutes, Joel said, wait a minute, wait a minute, stop. He said, you do this for a living, right? I said, yes. You have kids? Yes, I said. Can you protect your own children? No way. There's too many chemicals out there. Even if I can focus on five or 10 at any one time, there's another 100 or 200 out there that we haven't even begun to study. So the only way to really tackle this problem is by having a regulatory system that recognizes that even low-level exposures to chemicals can be detrimental and proving that they are safe before they're put on the market. All right. Having said that, until we get to that point where we have a effective regulatory system for chemicals, what can we do? Uh, the first thing, if you can afford it, choose organic. Choose food that isn't packaged or isn't canned. Now, why is that? Well, um, organic food tends to have lower levels of pesticide residue. Packaging oftentimes comes with uh, phthalates and other contaminants in the processing of food. Bisphenol A is used oftentimes as a, a, a sealant in cans. Uh, and phthalates, just as an example, are anti-androgenic. They lower testosterone. This is not something men want to hear about. Or maybe we do and we just don't want to be exposed to it. Uh, BPA is an estrogenic chemical, and there's problems that have been associated with these estrogenic chemicals that we don't want people to be exposed to. So there are some cans you can get that aren't containing bisphenol A, but to a large extent, the, the, the companies are not labeling uh, their products in a way that you can easily decipher. So what do we do in my home? Uh, we've started to can our own foods. Uh, we got an instant pot so we can easily uh, set up beans, for example, and cook them quickly, and we don't have to rely on canned beans. Um, we tend to stay away from packaged foods whenever possible. Now, having said that, we do what we can. Sometimes we go out to eat at restaurants uh, or we go to a friend's house. We're not zealots about it. We do what we can, and then we just act like everything's normal. Um, I've got three daughters. I tried over the past 20 years to get them to a, not use cosmetics. That's really hard. And if I was successful, it was only partially successful. I would sometimes say, okay, well, let me buy your cosmetics for you, or they pick them out and I would approve them, and then I'd pay for them. But by and large, it's really hard because um, our daughters, and even perhaps now more our sons, are constantly exposed to these images that says you have to look this like this or you're not beautiful, or you have to look like this or you're not handsome. And um, if you're not using these cosmetics, you're not beautiful. And as much as I tried to tell my daughters they're beautiful just like they are, I'm just their dad. You know, I only matter so much. Um, but avoid cosmetics. Uh, minimize the use of, of oils and creams and lotions and shampoos. Uh, you can go to places like 
uh, environmental working group and find out uh, the, the best or the safest cosmetics to use. Um, so that's another thing. Uh, don't use pesticides in and around your home. Uh, pesticides have been associated with uh, the development of leukemia in children if they were exposed uh, when their mother was pregnant with them. Uh, they've also been associated with IQ deficits in children. Um, and then there are some things you can do your home within your home. When you paint, for example, be very careful, clean up. If it's an older home, you might even want to do some testing uh, before you move back in or seal off a room and only use one room at a time to, to renovate. Uh, because you can you can create a lot of dust that contains uh, lead when you renovate. So those are some some relatively simple things you can do that can reduce your exposures. But again, just emphasize the only ultimate solution is to make sure we have a strong regulatory system. And as much as sometimes you know I'll even accuse EPA of not doing enough. Um, it's clear that EPA needs more resources to do their job. It's clear that EPA needs a stronger mandate to do their job so that they're protecting us. And, and we should hold them accountable, but we should also be willing to give them the resources they need to protect us. Absolutely. So when do you think we got off target? Because, I mean, I know the history of the EPA. You know, it was the Raiders, Naders came up with all this great stuff, and they literally just got it through by popular demand. And I feel yeah. like we could do that again if we had some unity. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we'll get back to that point at some time. I mean, it's it's like the thalidomide epidemic. Now, we didn't used to regulate drugs. Drugs could be sold without being tested for safety. They could be sold without knowing whether they worked or not, whether they were efficacious, uh, until the thalidomide epidemic. And that crisis woke everybody up and they passed laws saying you must prove that these drugs are safe um, and that they work as you market them. Now, there's still problems with the, the approval process and with the FDA, but by and large, uh, the FDA process for drugs is much more stringent than what we have for environmental chemicals. And the basic idea, which is what the European Union has already done, is they've said to industry, industry, if you want to use chemicals, these chemicals in your products, you have to prove that they are safe before you use them. In North America, we still basically say, you can use these chemicals until it's been shown that they are toxic. And that usually means in multiple laboratory studies, sometimes dozens, hundreds of laboratory studies, and sometimes dozens or more human studies. Well, what does that mean? By default, that means that millions of children, millions of pregnant women will be exposed to these chemicals that might be toxic before we actually show that they're toxic. And that doesn't make sense because we've seen with lead, with mercury, with PCBs, with PBDEs, with phthalates, we've seen how they can be toxic. We've seen this pattern of toxicity, very much like with drugs, right? We know that drugs can be beneficial, but we also know they can be toxic. And the only rational thing to do in, in, in that setting is to test the products before they're put on the market. Yes, absolutely. So what can we do in our local town that non-toxic Irvine really has spearheaded? Or how can we maybe partner with non-toxic Irvine in our local areas to emulate them and to follow along with them? Because they've, they've managed to 
kick pesticides out of Irvine. That's right. Yeah, and this was, I tell you, this was so exciting for me to see. Most of the most of my work has been geared toward how do we create standards at the federal level that will trickle down to the states and then the cities, um, thinking that you know that was the most efficient way to go. And I think if our system worked, it probably would be. In the absence of that, what's happening is cities are having to tackle these problems on their own. And uh, non-toxic Irvine is just a beautiful example of, of that kind of um, local group. It's a small group, but a local uh, small group of people who basically said, this isn't right. We want to do it different. And they've taken the bull by the horns. And it's a big bull. And somehow, city by city, first Irvine, then some nearby cities have taken on this challenge and basically said, we don't want these pesticides used in our schools and in our parks, and we don't need them. They're unnecessary. There's alternatives. And in fact, maybe we can even save money. And this idea has just sort of taken hold. And you know, for somebody who's been fighting to get some of the science translated to make a difference, uh, it's so rewarding because it takes so long to do. And we're not seeing it at the federal level. We're beginning to see a lot more creativity in the local communities, like in with uh, non-toxic Irvine. It's really, truly amazing what they've done. Where can we go to, to start learning more about these chemicals, learning more about, and actually let me back up before we, we, we go there. Where do you turn for clarity, for guidance and, and you know and truth in this in this current system that we live in because i mean we, we look to the government and we and we hear the, some of the things that are coming out of the epa coming out of you know the administration and we it's shocking how ignorant how off how dangerous some of these things are and so where do you turn for information and I, and this is something I'm, I'm starting to ask more and more people because it's a really hard question yeah well, for certain kinds of chemicals, the ones that I will be studying intensively, I, I go back to the original studies, um, which is harder and harder because there's so many of them. Hmm. I mean, when I started 25 years ago, there are probably a couple dozen people who um, were working in this field of what we now call children's environmental health. And now there's thousands of them hmm. uh, worldwide and at least in the hundreds, maybe low thousands in, in uh, the United States and North America. Uh, so I'll go back to the original research for those that I'm gonna be studying intensively, whether it's lead or pesticides or fluoride. For many of the others, there's just not that much evidence. Um, and so, for example, if you're thinking about something like cosmetics or shampoos, Oftentimes, you're going by what we know in the laboratory studies. Like, we mainly have studies of uh, mice or, or rats. Um, and in that case, like with cosmetics, you can go to something like environmental working group. Mm -hmm. And you can begin to, they'll, they'll screen for different kinds of things. And it's not always that we know that this particular chemical found in that fingernail polish causes particular problems in humans, but there may be enough in the laboratory studies to be able to say, yeah, you should avoid that. And so that's another one I think that, that consumers can look at. And in other cases, we can try to go around the system and say, well, 
we know organic certification is not perfect, but to the extent that we can take away some of these unnecessary uh, chemicals that may that may be toxic, you know, you know, piggyback over it and just say I'm going to try to minimize the amount of chemicals in my environment, and that is a rule of thumb is is something I start out with when I talk about well what can we do, and I come back to this ba- real basic idea and that is if we didn't evolve with it avoid it. Hmm. Now as you remember with the story of lead we did evolve with it but it was only there in extraordinarily small concentration so there's a few caveats on that yes we evolved with lead you still want to avoid it but it was only there in very very small concentrations and because of the industrialization process we've contaminated our environment but if we didn't evolve with it avoid it save your money uh, go cheap use other things to clean your home um, minimize the use of cosmetics those kinds of things. Thank you so much, Bruce. It has been an absolute pleasure. I'm gonna post below your videos and one of your talks, and and I'm gonna uh, post a link to Non-Toxic Irvine. I'm so one. excited for the work that's being done, and I, I'm really excited to see how fast it's spreading. Yeah, I, I am too. Very surprised and just delighted. <laughs> well, more good luck and more success to you and everything that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. Wow, that was incredible. There's so many insights in there that I want to apply. I want to stop buying any packaged food. It's like we go to Costco, we buy things in bulk. That's great, but it's all packaged. So it's not that great. In fact, we're getting this chemical toxin load and we need to get to that pure local, that pure regenerative source. And that's hard for a lot of people to find. And that's why we turn so much to ourselves. That's why we homestead, because it's such an easier option. But what we really need to do is start this conversation, get people everywhere in our communities understanding what needs to happen. We need to clean up our community, to clean up our bodies, to make our communities more equitable, more peaceful, more more successful all these things are interrelated it's all part of the holistic picture so let's get involved let's start check out these videos if you don't believe me check out the science see what bruce is actually talking about see what the blood levels are see what the levels of efficacy are and then get involved let's get our communities involved let's get everyone everywhere thinking about living non-toxically getting our communities so that they're safe for women who are pregnant for, for children, for everyone. And then start getting our food to the highest level possible so that it doesn't carry any of these burdens in that way either. So let's clean up our communities, clean up our homes, clean up you know the cosmetics that we use, the, the cleaners we use. Check out the EWG.com or no, EWG.org and the information that's on there. Start cleansing your life of these things. Start eating the best food you can. And let's start living the best life possible because that's the only path to an abundant future. We're not going to be able to, you know, get that like perfect standard. We're not going to be able to be perfectly clean of any of these kinds of things. But the path to getting our population clean of them through this industrial history is starting now, is declaring that we want a non-toxic community, that we want non-toxic lives, that we want non-toxic food. So I hope that you join with us. You know, vote with your dollar, find out, connect with your local community 
and find out what's there, what's what's there to be offered. What can you get in your community that's going to make you stronger, that's going to make you happier, that's going to make you more successful. I hope that you take this opportunity to explore and evaluate and reflect and grow and progress. And I hope that this week's is an incredible one and I hope that you have an abundant future in your mind. I'm Matt Powers. Thank you for listening. Thank you for living regeneratively. Thank you for making choices towards that regenerative future. Grow abundantly, learn daily, and live regeneratively. Have a great week.